Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us today. At this hour, it used to be known for its tenement-style buildings, but these days, new construction is transforming the Lower East Side with loads of new residential and retail buildings ushering in rising prices. The reality, gritty is the first word that uh, experts use when uh, asked to paint a picture of the Lower East Side, but gritty here is good and very popular. Also at this hour, the LGBTQ community and the real estate industry go hand-in-hand. In In fact, together they hold the key to significant advancement for the New York City real estate market. Why? We'll discuss all of this. But first, I'd like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate, and I am your host, Vince Rocco. In the news this morning, located in the northern section of Chelsea, in between Zaha Hadid's first residential building and the High Line stretching over West 27th Street, a series of new art galleries designed by studio MDA founder Marcus Du Khan Chin, I think, are near, nearing completion. The project will yield nearly 15,000 square feet of interior gallery space split between two single-story buildings dubbed the High Line 9. The structures are currently under construction and are being developed by Related. A bill to regulate home-sharing giant Airbnb passed the city's council last Wednesday, but with a far less severe penalty than was originally considered. The council voted unanimously 45-0 to to force the company to report its local listings to the mayor's office of special enforcement. Failure to report could result in a fine of $1,500 per listing, a dramatic drop from the bill's original proposed maximum fine of $25,000. That fine was shared, slashed rather, out of concern that the original fees could be considered too onerous when Airbnb sues, according to a source close to the negotiations. The company has vowed to file a lawsuit online online privacy grounds. The legislation's passage is a win for the Hotel Trades Council, the local hotel workers' union, which sees the proliferation of short-term rentals as an existential threat. The New York City Rent Guidelines Board voted this week to allow increases on rent-stabilized apartments across the city for leases renewing after October 1st of this year. With the vote, landlords of rent-stabilized apartments may now raise rents by 1.5% for one-year leases and 2.5% for two-year leases. Although relatively modest, these increases are the largest allowed since Mayor Bill de Blasio took office in 2013. Last year, the board voted to allow increases of 1.25% on one-year leases and 2% on two-year leases. In 2015 and 16, it voted to freeze increases on one-year leases and to permit increases of just 2% on two-year leases, an unprecedented move in the organization's 40-year history. And since landing $450 million in funding from SoftBank last year, Compass has been aggressively scooping up brokerages and agents across the country, and now the venture-backed company is exploring a new line of business. It's licensing its technology to other firms. On Wednesday, Compass announced its inaugural uh, licensing deal with Leading Edge Real Estate Group, a 200-agent firm, with offices in Boston and eastern Massachusetts, which until recently was a franchise of Remax. The pivot, which many predicted years ago, represents a new revenue stream for the brokerage, which has spent the last seven months in acquisitions mode. Many are saying this latest venture is another cog in the wheel for Compass's growth plan. We've all seen this coming, and we're waiting for it, and we were waiting for it to happen, said one brokerage head. Still, sources said the news, while not surprising, represents a dramatic shift for a company that until now 
has focused on building tools to make their own agents more productive. They are playing both ends to see which works better, groused one brokerage chief. Anyway, good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. What do we all think about that last report on Compass licensing their technology to other firms or to anyone else who wants to purchase it? We thought that they were building, as the report said, these technology tools to help their own internal people. What's what's this about? I don't know if there's really a large market for them. I think the market to license tools like that is very fragmented. Companies like Douglas Elliman, Keller Williams, they all have their own technology departments and funds and tools. I don't really see who's going to use it. You know, I, I would say that in places like New York City, where we really don't have a strong central MLS, the idea of having something that's like a, a, a well-manicured tool to access everything could sound great. But from an investor standpoint, I think that sometimes internal investment on a technology company is probably a little bit more proven than like a brokerage company. If it's I, easier to like 10x. You know, I think popular, popular thinking right now is that they're going to probably try to license their technology or their intergalactic technology to smaller firms to get it kind of out there and, and uh, you know, working. And then maybe over time, some of the larger firms would would take note and want to participate in that. But as you all just said, you know, most companies have their own technology, have had it for years. So let's see. I think as everybody suggests, you know, uh, doing some research on this article, that that's probably phase one in their overall business plan. And who knows what's next with with Compass. We wish them well. Anyway, so getting to our top story, it used to be known for its tenement-style buildings, but these days new construction is transforming the Lower East Side with loads of new residential and retail buildings ushering in rising prices more so or faster than ever before. The reality, gritty, I love that word gritty, is the first word that experts use when asked to paint a picture of the Lower East Side. I remember when Tribeca was gritty. I remember when Soho was absolutely gritty. I remember when parts of Brooklyn were gritty. We love that word gritty. So the Lower East Side still is gritty, but very popular. My question to all of you as, as, as real estate agents who work in all areas of the city, what's going on in the Lower East Side? Lower East Side. So I'm, I'm taking the mic. And as is my hood, and I love it. And uh, and I actually I, I lived in the East Village. And as far as as far as the buildings and and what you can get, I mean, ranging from you know the the tenements that you can get walk ups for, I mean, very very inexpensive, to two fifteen Christie, which is asking you know upwards of three to five thousand a foot. Crazy. And they're getting Crazy. the numbers. Yeah. And like, it's insane. Yeah. But you have to you have to remember that the Lower East Side, the, the <clears throat> physical territory of the Lower East Side is really large. Right. I mean, you're going from yeah. from the corner of Houston to and Houston and Bower, Bowery all the way over to the river, all the way down to the river. So I mean, you have you have buildings from like I said, 215 Christie, all the way down to 252 South, that are vastly different, asking different things, offering different excuse me, different things, and in completely different neighborhoods within the Lower East Side. So, What do you think about Essex Crossing? Um, mm, good I'm, I'm, I'm okay with Essex Crossing. I'm actually very happy with Essex Crossing. Essex Crossing has revitalized the southern part of the Lower East Side, south of Delancey, and it needed it. And I have to say, it's shocking to me, and I think about this all the time, it's shocking to me that Brooklyn became what it is before the Lower East Side, being Good on point. Manhattan Island. Yeah. I mean, it's time. It's incredible that this hasn't happened before with all of those vacant lots that were there for years and years and years and years. 
I mean, the uproar was, where am I going to park my car? Right. <laughs> but everyone's figuring that out. And instead of parking your car, you're going to get Target. You're going to get Trader Joe's. You're going to get amenities in the neighborhood that have never existed before. Movie theater, bowling It's literally where I live. I mean, it's where you live. <laughs> right, I live a block away from that in Brooklyn. Yeah, oh, in City Point. Oh, okay. But, but like the concept of Essex Crossing close to a, or a little bit over a million square feet of space. It's yeah. developed residential it's office. It's monstrous. The whole but there's also, but they're doing yep. the underground market. I right. Mean, they're, they're utilizing the space and they're offering things that are somewhat unique. I mean, there's, you know, Chelsea Market and all of that. Right. But they're taking things that worked in other areas and they're bringing it down there. And, you know, Trader Joe's is the perfect addition because it's affordable. And there's a lot of people in that neighborhood that need affordable. And the supermarket's down there right now. I mean, if you want moldy strawberries, I'll tell you exactly what <laughs> I have the hardest time the buying strawberries. But on the contrast, uh, if you want to buy a new construction condo down there, minimum $2,000 a square foot, 196 Orchard, uh, 50 Clins, 2,200 square foot, uh, 75 Christmas. Those, yeah. those are the two primary two areas room, that you, have, square you foot. have 171 Henry where you can get 12, 1,200 and up. I mean, it's a different product. Different product. Different product. But yeah, but some of those areas will be floated up by some of the development. So when you have the market yes. line, which is similar to the Dig Hall market in Brooklyn and Chelsea market, yeah. of course, on the west side, where you have all of the amenities that you need, but you can still get a little bit more of that grit which yeah. will become a strongly marketed word, <laughs> yeah. then I think that's the type of thing that will cause a major shift in the But pricing. also, but also, sorry, I'm cutting I'm cutting the no, 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 go ahead. because I have so much to say <laughs> about the neighborhood. But once Essex Crossing is in full swing, that's when neighborhoods like or streets like Canal, which we've talked about before on the show, East Broadway, Henry Street has some beautiful buildings. Unfortunately, you know, Henry, if you look at oh. like the eastern part of Henry, well, not the eastern, I, I guess more central Henry, beautiful buildings. And I mean, there's a lot of um, subsidized housing and low income and all of that. So it'll take a lot of time before it turns over. But I think that's going to be the natural course of evolution down there. And um, unfortunately, a lot of these buildings are coming down because they're so broken down. If you think about like the history of the Lower East Side and how many people have lived in those, in each of those tenement apartments, and they hang their clothes out to dry, and the and the laundry lines in between buildings, and you know there was one bathroom in the back, and like the way that these buildings sometimes were in used, the shared hallway, a shared hallway, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the history is not really taking care of the buildings, and a lot of the building, the structural elements of the buildings can't hold up to conversion, so they have to get taken. One of the oldest parts of our city, obviously, you know, way back whenever the entree into New York and entree into the U.S. was through the Lower East Side. Many immigrant families began down there. But I want to ask a question about transportation. So how good or bad is the transportation it's horrible. in that location? It's so. it's terrible. People, so I, I, the one thing I will <laughs> I say, disagree. not to hate on your neighborhood. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. The, the one thing, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the, how terrible the it is. The one thing, they have, they have it's, not, it's, not, it's not terrible. Hold on. Yeah. Let me rephrase. It's are. not terrible. It depends on the day. Um, what I will say is that <laughs> what people, what, what, <laughs> what people don't realize is that actually um, having a couple deals on the Lower East Side right now and have taken a lot of my clients to these projects, almost every single new development in the Lower East Side is heavily negotiating as opposed, not as opposed, oh, yeah. like obviously all developments well, are doing it, but at the same, yeah. but even more so in the Lower East Side, if you, if you take a client there, you will realize, um, obviously you don't know until you make offers, but it, it's a big thing. And one of the main things about that is people have their thing about the subway. 
people have their thing about the F train. As long as there's a um, and then, car I available, to love I'm per- perfectly <laughs> I think for our I rely on in particular, it. <laughs> I rely on it too. I mean, I don't. It's the I guess I don't, train in the city, though. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. Oh yeah. Definitely. Oh yeah. Well, then it's also. Nice. But I'll tell you something. For our business to get to all these different neighborhoods that we're always in, the F train connects to every other line, one way or another. If it's and working it's, properly. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I take it off peak hours, right? I'm, I'm never on the train at 7.30 in the morning. All right. We are going to hold it there. Take it up <laughs> on the other side of the break because there's a lot more to talk about. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back, and we are here today with uh, Matthew Cohen from CORE, Ari Harkov from uh, Halstead Real Estate, Sean McPeak from Halstead, John Harrison is back with us from CORE, and Anna Shagaloff from Halstead. So we're talking about the Lower East Side, and Matthew wants to con- continue his <laughs> point that he <laughs> when was he's trying done to make. I'm, I'm ready to pound some whatever you We were talking about now. transportation, I believe. Okay, so positive first. I'll give, I'll give my positive outlook first. I think that... The the Equinox and 196 Orchard will do wonders yes. for the Lower East Side. I think that in that area, there's no real mm. like a, a higher up gym to offer people. Um, you don't need one. Dolphin Fitness, not yeah, but a lot of people. But honestly, <laughs> I, used to go to Dolphin you know, back in the day. I I have con- like all my clients who have taken throughout there. They're like, "What's the gym around here?" And they're like, "No Equinox." So you go to the East River Park, right, you do the they don't walk out in the bars yeah. of the boys. There's also Manny Canner Center that ha- happens to have a really nice gym. I go the, there too. The what center? The Manny Canner nice Center on East Broadway. You just Beautiful. elevate it and say okay. that there are private well, trainers. The, so that was going to be my positive. I was trying to get in more positive because there more. So then I think, you know, I think the reason that developments are having trouble along East Houston is because of 
Um, a lot of those buildings you'll notice are built to the same height, like mm-hmm. eight or nine floors, mm-hmm. because of the fact that you can't go above a certain height, obviously. Um, and what people have issues with are like at 196 Orchard and 287 East House and the, bil- the apartments that are facing north, they look right onto Houston. And they are not only noisy, but people can very clearly see you. And my clients have at least had issues with that up to the fifth floor. And these buildings are only eight. On floors. the positive side, they've completely repaved and like re yeah. on Houston. Oh, Houston is yeah. Like yeah, so it's a little and, better. And, but and, it is, Houston's Houston. Yeah, Redirecting exactly. traffic a little bit might help. But the, yeah, exactly, Houston is Houston. Is but but listen, you know, I think I think some of the newer developments today are you know not unlike new developments anywhere in the city right now, they're kind of on pause. I mean, 196 Orchard, I mean, that started and paused and started and stopped yeah. and then started again. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that that has anything to do with the Lower East Side. I think it just has to do with the marketplace where we are today. I think their pricing was completely off. And yeah, the price, was, pricing yeah, was, yeah. Pricing and was crazy. They were totally fast. non-negotiable for too the first year. Too, too fast, fast. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So, you know, all, all of these things, um, you know, weigh in. So are we in agreement that the, the transportation is okay out of the well, Lower East Side, right? Something? Well, some of us are. It depends, though. Remember, because as Anna said, it's a very big territory. So there are parts, it's there are areas you can absolute, get to. There's deserts. Where you're deserts in a desert. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But well, I'll tell you, I mean, there's a bus culture. And I know so many, true. if you're not, if you're not into buses, and I wasn't into buses Matthew either until I moved down there. Matthew is not going to jump on the bus. <laughs> That's not going to happen. You know what, Matthew? Like I challenge you, you to take a bus. I challenge you to take a bus because it's actually, you can make calls, you can connect with email you have wi-fi the whole way Listen, you just need a little bit of extra I take time the bus. And i love the bus the only time, time i've ever taken the bus in manhattan is to go cross town from the upper west to the upper east i'm and doing back. that later after and the i show. gotta tell you i've never been more frustrated in any form of translation i'm well, like you have to have i'm like i have, have to be have there in 10 minutes you're a new yorker you should know better than taking a bus anywhere in 10 minutes you don't jump on a bus i mean that's not gonna happen that's just it then you're more aware of the traffic i mean that i think that's the reason why especially across town east or west or west or east I'm, I'm oh, going to take it later this it's afternoon to go to the east side. But the fourteen, there's so many buses down by me, down on like the Grand Street strip, that um, all connect to each other. I mean, I can get anywhere I need to, and I can yeah. connect to any subway. You just you have to get used to it. It's a it's a. It'd be so I mean, you have to learn it though. I will say the western the really the western side of the Lower East Side is like one of my favorite areas in the city. So as long yeah. as you don't go too far, like I love Bowery and West. Yeah, like that's I mean, if you walk down me. Orchard and Ludlow, I mean, there's so much to discover. Division Street. Does anyone know about Division yeah, Street? Yeah, I do. It's there's some awesome restaurants. Dimes on on Canal. Well, I listen. Mean, I mean, as long as, as, long as there's a via care. car someplace, I'm happy. I don't care about the bus. I don't care about the train. And actually, the taxis have gotten way better right. down down there. Like, all right, let's yes. move on. So, following five consecutive months of decline, Manhattan saw its first increase in rents thanks to a growing demand for larger apartments. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The median net effect rent, which uh, accounts for concessions rose 0.4% year-over-year in May to $3,392, according to the latest rental reports. But the trend was largely driven by the surge in new leases for larger apartments as the high-end sales market softened just a little bit. Uh, How are we looking or how are we heading into or out of now the second quarter as summer is here and going into the third quarter not too far from now? Where are we with the rental market or at least the higher-end rental market based on the, the softening of the higher-end sales market? It's moving. I mean, the low-end of the rental market's moving, too. 
Um, that's my observation. Transaction yeah. volume is yeah. definitely down, though. So, like, we have a very large portfolio that we manage for our team, and one of the things that we're seeing is all the landlords in the city are very aggressively going after their existing tenant base to keep the tenants in place yeah. to avoid right. turnover yeah. because they see the market is soft. So, our transaction Amen. volume, which makes sense and it's smart, and we're counseling them, but the transaction volume is down significantly, which I think is also helping the market because there's less vacancy coming back on, and we're seeing all landlords do that, big and small. Yeah, so a lot of concessions going into new transactions in order to make them happen. But then sometimes people, they go in, let's say you have a gross rent of $4,500, but your initial net effective is like $3,700. I think what you're, one of the things you're indicating is a lot of landlords are saying, you know what, we're going to renew you based on your original net effective or closer to it just because they don't want to sit on they'll give you anything they'll give you a mercedes a rolls royce doesn't like anything to keep an existing tent (laughs) because they see what's happening in the market right now yeah um yeah yeah you should have well it's got to be the right type of apartment if you didn't buy that co-op and uh you know (laughs) let's go rent in one of those buildings that have a rolls royce we'll take that so on on the heels of that being a new york city rental broker has always been a tough gig but the job gets even harder it's now been exactly one year since street easy began charging a daily $3 fee to post a rental listing. Where's Phil when we need him? On their site, a move that hit brokers in the pocketbook at a time when margins were already thin. The fee, which does not seem to have dissuaded brokers from using other Zillow sites, is just one of several street, uh, stressors that New York City rental brokers are facing. While Manhattan rental inventory actually dropped in May compared to the same time last year, generally is high and concessions for renters have been rampant. That's not to mention the fact that landlords have been uh, emboldened by new technology, allowing them to more easily advertise directly to renters, or as uh, um, Ari just said, to keep some renters from leaving. In addition, startup websites like Naked Apartments, which Zillow bought for $13 million and $16, Nestia, Renhop, and Flip, never heard of Flip, are all among those that um, smell opportunity in the long, opaque corner of the market. They're facing pressures coming from a variety of places. That said, I don't think the rental brokerage model will be protected anywhere but on the high end. So, you know, this is something that agents have been talking about for a long time. So we feel that on the high end, the rental market will be protected. uh, But on the lower end, or what we call the the regular renters out there, uh, not looking to spend, you know, five, six, ten, seven thousand dollars and up. Where is that rental broker a year or two from now? Because people think that they're going to be, you know, extinct. People have been saying that for a while. Yeah, I think I, there's some really, really good rental brokers out there that are doing multiple transactions a week that I think will be just fine because they're getting a lot of referrals. They're getting a lot of relocation clients that, you know, the cor- corporations really kind of drive that low-end renter uh, fee. And I would say, I mean, like, so, so for the rentals that we do, we did about we did 112 leases last year on my team. And for the rentals that we do, we're actually getting 15% full fees on a lot of the transactions, like a shockingly high percentage. This year, too. paying full fee this year, even. Wow. So yeah. I think the media overblows a lot of these things. You get people from out of town who don't know the market. You get people from a corporate perspective whose companies are paying. You get people who love the apartment and there are two people interested and they bid for it and they want to be competitive. There are a number of different scenarios where people still pay full fees. They want the service. They want, you know, it it happens. So I think for all of these startups, there's a reason why none of them have really caught on. Well, I think, though, these startups are sort of addressing something other than just you collecting full fee. Because I agree with you, by the way, but I think these startups are attacking the model of tenant rep, um, the tenant rep brokerage model, sure. where like regardless of how many, an infinite number of new websites that can pop up uh, to connect uh, tenants with apartments, when you're mm-hmm. listing an apartment, you know, it's not like landlords are going to say, I no longer want a broker to come in and create a market and create a campaign for, for my apartment. So I don't think that is going anywhere, even if more people 
try to do, even if more people try to do their own research and, you know, find their own apartments, somebody still has to list it and create a market for it. In which case there is still going to be brokerage. There's still going to be commission involved. Then the question just becomes once again, whether or not it's a split commission or right. what or happens on the tenant side. Mm-hmm. Right. And if yeah. you think about all the investment properties out there, they can't, they can't do their own marketing. They can't. Yeah. And they don't they want to. Nobody that understands it should want to. And anyone that tries yeah. very quickly turns around and finds a broker. But I think Ari is right. I think the media kind of blows it up a little bit and, and makes it a little more dramatic than it actually is. There's always going to be a need, regardless of the price point of an apartment, for an agent, as John just said, to advertise it, to list it, to market it, to get it out there. I mean, that that's that's what we do. And people who have very busy jobs, investors who aren't even in the city, who live elsewhere, how are they going to rent their own places? I mean, it's I'll impossible. I'll tell you, though, that street easy fee is like, it, that adds up quick. It adds it up does. very quick. The monthly I mean, bill is amazing. You, yeah. The monthly bill is amazing. Actually, it's kind of shocking to me, but, you know, hopefully we'll get past that at some point. Um, Bill. Anyway, well, Doug. you know. Bill. <laughs> Bill, where are you? You know, where are Come you? Come back, Phil. <laughs> All right, anyway, for the new federal tax law is scaring some home buyers away from Westchester sales in the county, which has the highest property tax burden in the country, tumbled 18% in the second quarter versus a year earlier. That's the most since 2011. Bloomberg reported that. Uh, biz uh, buyers are concerned that they won't be able to write off their steep property taxes. The new rules set at $10,000 limit on deductions for state and local taxes below the 17000 average that Westchester residents paid in property taxes last year. That, according to Adam Data Solutions. I mean, $17,000 property taxes for a year is actually kind of low. Yeah. My yeah. brother pays upwards of $35,000 a year. Uh, how are we seeing any of this translated into the New York marketplace again with the new tax law change that is affecting well, markets all around the country. But, well, we, but we, we're so exaggerated here. Well, there's a report in Bloomberg this week that uh, apartments under twenty uh, under $1 million, uh, the inventory for apartments like that have increased by 27%. And I'm seeing it with my listings in that range that they're getting, uh, you know, there's a lot of competition. There's They're getting a lot, we're getting a decent amount of traffic, but there's just so many options for people out there because th- the fact is that their balance sheets are and I think, I mean, we're seeing more and more buyers who are paying more and more attention, not only to the sticker price on the property, but to the carrying costs more so than they ever did before. Yeah. The other interesting thing that we're seeing is so on the new development side, we do a fair amount of new development work. When we're getting these tax estimates from the experts, the tax experts for all of our offering plans now, the estimates are coming in unbelievably high, like to levels where we can't even sell these apartments. And I think part of what's happening is you have this double whammy of the city raising taxes combined with the federal tax cap now, so you can't deduct the taxes. So the combined impact of those two things is having a meaningful impact on the market. And if you don't have a 421A in place for at least 10 years, you've got buyers who are skeptical because those monthlies add up very quickly very on top quickly. of a mortgage and everything else that you have to pay. Go ahead, Matt. There is probably nothing that is going to be said on this radio show that I agree more with than what Ari just said about people being aware of monthlies. Um, you know, more so throughout, than throughout the years, it has, you know, it went from price per square foot to total value of the purchase price to now the majority of my clients, especially first time home buyers, are just so cognizant of that um, that monthly nut. And, and it's making more of them go into neighborhoods that they didn't think about and, and really push that neighborhood because of the fact that these more up and coming neighborhoods have lower monthlies. They, they have lower tax slots. And in a lot of ways, the city, I find, is not even paying as much attention to certain areas like a, you know, I had a few, funny enough, same development in Washington Heights last week. And I had two different clients go to see 
that development. And the monthlies on a one bedroom there are no more than $400 total of your common charges and taxes. It's amazing. So when you compare that to a one bedroom, even in a similar range, say it's a co-op on the Upper East Side or the Upper West, you're at least looking at $1,300, $1,400 a month. If you want to own a piece of the rock and, you know, that's the only place that you can do it, that's not a bad starting point. You know, you could always move, sell, do whatever down the road. We've got to take a break. We're live from Blastoff Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. We will continue on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. We are back, and we're talking to Matthew Cohen, Ari Harkov, Sean McPeak, John Harrison, and Anna Shagalov. So let's talk about um, some new research. A recent study, researchers in the real estate field said their findings link real data to something about which people have been yelling into the void for years. Nobody is actually using their formal living and dining rooms anymore. Families actually spend most of their time in the kitchen and in the informal living room or den. So when I'm making jambalaya, there's five people around me in the kitchen and there's no place to move, right? I'll be right next to you next to that. that it's incredible. So yet we continue to And is drool going into the pot. Into the pot. It's a special shrimp. I'm going to give her the recipe right later. So That's we continue to build these wastes of spaces because many Americans still want that extra square footage. And for a long time, you know, it's been miscategorized as I need to have all this extra square footage. Well, you can. You don't have to have it just carved into multiple rooms. So where are we in New York City? Because Westchester and Connecticut and Long Island, you know, suburbs have a different, I guess, take on what type of housing or floor plan they need. But in New York City, are formal living rooms and formal dining rooms really necessary anymore? I mean, in really? new developments, you sort of have open concept, but in pre-wars, you still have very defined rooms. So where are we with Most this? people need space. I mean, I know that there are still some uh, some people that are developing or redeveloping or renovating with the separated rooms. But I think in New York City, stepping into a, a place where you can have a great room that you can use yeah. for your living, yeah. dining, kitchen. I mean, it's popular now, especially because of things like people's food blogs. Yeah. That's a little plug there. Um, and, <laughs> you know, the Food Network, like everybody wants to cook. It's fun. We hang out in and near the kitchen. And yeah. so if that spills over into a living space, I think that's what most people want. I think there are exceptions. I, I read to that. the. I read the. Uh, I thought the comments on that that article were very interesting. I usually go to articles for the comments. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of families that do value that kind of uh, nighttime, you know, family time 
dining area. And I think it's really important if you have, you know, small children or you're, you're raising kids that you can kind of just sit around the table See, and have a chat. That's an interesting point because I know I, I, I've seen so many people turn those dining rooms into playrooms for their kids. Yeah, that's true. Or, yeah, right. or and, it, and, it, and it works incredibly they well. They have like eating like kitchen. Or they have eating kitchens. They have, um, you know, large enough living rooms that they could put a dining table in or they're long enough that you can make it work. And then you, if you think about it, I mean, so many people that buy um, estates that have these rooms, I mean, they knock down the wall and they open mm-hmm. it up for right. the most part. I've had a couple of people over the years that actually enclose their kitchen, which to me is like. Ari, you're a family guy. You have two beautiful mm-hmm. children. So you're renovating a, a, a townhome, a mm-hmm. brownstone rather. What are you and your wife thinking about as far as family space or, or you know, rooms that can accommodate, you know, more family time versus, mm-hmm. you know, separations of rooms and people going in all different directions and whatever else. How are you addressing that for your family? Uh, so I think our, what we're doing in our philosophy is always that if you go into 90% of people's homes, they spend 90% of their time outside of their bedroom in and around the kitchen. It's like yeah. if it, no matter where everybody hangs out, they're always around the kitchen and they're always hanging out in the kitchen. So our philosophy is to make that space as open and as inviting and as interconnected with the rest of the living space. Um, I think division of space is is kind of out of vogue in the way that we live today. Um, and it's like you're in the kitchen cooking and you want to see what the kids are doing in the play area. So you want to have like a, 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 site of, a line of vision. Um, so the more open, the better is kind of our philosophy. That's exactly when I renovated my co-op. Vogue. That's exactly what I did. I, I, I changed the entrance to my third bedroom to open it to the living room so yeah. that when we're in the kitchen... I can kind of see. You can see the kids. I can right? see the kids yeah. playing, and, and I turn it into a playroom. Did I say mm-hmm. that already? And it's open to, and I've got like sliding door, <laughs> and it's open to the living room as yeah. well. So they have their space, but yet I can see them, and they're still part of yeah. our life. We, we've yeah. got like a smallish living room, but our living room is also our di- dining room, which is also our kitchen. So we've got a giant table that takes up a huge portion of our room because it's not the room itself isn't big, but we love it. We wouldn't have it any other way. So we still have our anchored family time where we have all of the kids. I've got three little boys. We've got all the kids around the table. We eat dinner. We try to do this every night. Um, it just happens to not wow. be a separate dining room. It's mm-hmm. all right there. I well, grew up in a this... house that was very defined rooms, a living room, a kitchen, a dining room, a this and a that. But we had a family room that after dinner, and this is, we're talking long ago, after dinner, we would all kind of merge into the family room and we all watch TV together. So that was all like my drawing family. room. My parents, yeah. yeah, way of getting the Cigar family room. together. And they had yeah. four kids. So you can just imagine six of us in the room watching television. But I mean, you know, for years and years it worked. Of course, as you get older, you want your own TV in your room and you want to do this yeah. and you want to do that. But, but the core... I think after a family dinner, as John just said, was to kind of get together if everybody wanted to watch TV or just talk. We did it all in one room. I don't think my parents really liked us to be all over the place when we were really little. Um, and then at the, Trust you know, me, they did not changes. like you to be. <laughs> no, they didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> when you were really I could tell you that now, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't this what's great about New York City? I mean, you have a little bit of everything. Like, yeah, you, right. you really yeah. can find, you know, whatever, create, you want whatever you want for any, yeah, for any kind of family or person um, to give a perspective that is, I guess, in terms of a little younger and without a, my own children. Um, <laughs> I can say that, you know, I'm working on three new developments right now, and one of them gives offers a lot of space to people, um, a lot of space. And then the other two are much more efficient uses of housing. And the two that are, you know, of this efficient, smaller housing theme that we're seeing in the world are flying. And they're like, I, I got to tell you, I, I would not be shocked if we sell them out before we even launch. And Is it combined then, space, though, or separate separate dining areas? Well, of which the efficient, of the efficient the spaces, yeah, they're they're 
it's combined. So what they're trying to do is like everything is, is, you know, um, efficiently spaced out. And, and what I was going to say is that the bigger units we're having trouble with. So I think, you know, in one case, yes, it's nice to have as much space as possible and it's must to, you know, it's nice to have a real dining room for when your kids are gathering every night for dinner. But I also think that the small efficient housing is a theme that's all over the country. That's not going away. Those are also very different price points. Yeah, I think well, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's also financial consideration. Right, right, exactly. I mean, raising kids, as you guys know, in New York City is not exactly an inexpensive yeah. thing. So I think, you know, there's there's a woman who's a school consultant in Brooklyn and she talks to a lot of the, you know, you know I'm talking yeah. about and she talks to a lot of my clients. And when she does her pitch, her pitch is New York City is your backyard. You don't need a backyard. The city is your yard. So you buy a small, efficient unit, you jam your, di- your dining room, your living room, everything into here. your space, <laughs> and then you use the city as your backyard. And so that's the trade-off between going to the suburbs and commuting. Yeah. The other thing is amenities, like public amenities in space. I think that's where some of the balance comes in, because mm-hmm. while fewer people are requiring separate dining spaces, uh, the growth of these publicly usable amenities and roof decks and all of that is on the incline. I mean, people are really starting to spend money and beefing I, I, up those spaces. I think that's also an age thing because when I when I work with um, uh, empty nester buyers, they're typically still looking for those divisions of spaces. I want a, I want an eating kitchen, but I want it separate. I want a separate dining room because you know my mother. If you asked her today, she'd say I have to have my formal dining room. Okay, but then when you work with a younger set of people out there looking at all the newer developments with the open concept and much more space, I think that, and the amenities, I think that kind of appeals to them. Children love the amenities as well. So I think it depends on who you were. And that's one of the things I like about my job, especially representing buyers, is because you get to do all of that. You yeah. work with people who want this and you work with right. people who want that, different ages, different mindsets, and and that's what keeps it fresh. And that's what keeps it really interesting, I think, for us as, as agents when we're out there working with buyers. Anyway, moving on, West Harlem, we talked about the Lower East Side. West Harlem has its own distinct feeling, yet you get a sense for the blended picture of New York. You have the Columbia campus as a magnet for people from all over the world, fused with restaurants and stores, which has been part of and parcel of this neighborhood for generations. But the Columbia expansion has definitely changed things up there. The first two buildings of the university's new Manhattanville campus recently opened, and the first business that Columbia leased space Two is a rock climbing wall. People say the area has seen improvements in its quality of life and credits the university's move into the neighborhood for all of that. Most of the housing stock has been updated in the last 10 to 15 years. A majority of the abandoned and dilapidated properties have become new homes. Safety has increased tremendously. The prediction is that more businesses will follow as usual. There's a lot of room for growth. More bars and restaurants will pop up. My question then is, so we've seen this gentrification for the last 10 or 15 years, <clears throat> at least in all the years that I'm in the real estate business. Um, so are we continuing with that gentrification and how much more can we change in the Harlem vicinity or the Harlem area? Um, I think having lived in West Harlem and, and do a lot of business up there, I think what's really nice about Harlem is that it hasn't been a gentrification process kind of like Williamsburg, where it was very, you know, when you look back at it, it, it seems a lot quicker. Um, Harlem and West Harlem specifically have taken time. It really has been a process. Um, not only do you have a lot of low-income housing and Mitchell Lama housing, especially in East Harlem, but you also have a lot of great just sensitive of diversity retail wise, you have a lot of mom and pop shops up there that people don't want going away. So, you know, when you have that gentrification process, I think it's always good to also work with the residents that are already there and the developers that have built up there have done a very nice job of that. They've really, you know, kept in mind the community 
and the diversity and having it just sustain the future of over gentrification, in my opinion. The only over gentrification that's happened up there, which in in my view has been for the better, is Morningside Park because Morningside Park used to be a place you would never go, you no, know, once dangerous. it was dark. Right. Dangerous. And I used to go, you know, through that park, in and out of that park, well into the night, never, ever, ever was nervous. And, you know, that was not the case five years ago. So, um, it, it's a good process, I would say. Yeah. Well, Columbia University, I mean, like they're they're taking on all of that land. That's not accidental. I mean, this has been decades in the planning to acquire the space, to build it up, to assemble it, and then to redevelop it. So by nature of creating this like tiny town up there, every piece of it is very, very intentional of trying to create something of value. But what that did is it, it did push some of the people that were living there slightly further out, which has caused surrounding areas to go up and value some too. Even up to like Hamilton Heights and you know everything outside of the bubble of West Harlem in the yeah. Columbia area. Well, yeah, again, as Anna said earlier, you know, with the Lower East Side being a vast amount of property and vast amount of land, it's same it's similar up in Harlem and it just I have my first rental listing up there for I've never had a listing in Harlem before. I've sold up there before, but I just Yay. put a listing on the board for <laughs> Harlem. And owned up there. Other feel other than feeling like it's just so far away, it really is not, and it really is kind of nice. I mean, there's a lot going on there, as you said, Matt. There's a lot of mom and pop stuff, which you know I've carried on about on this show many times in Manhattan proper. That it keeps disappearing by the day. Every time you get in a taxi and drive past something, it's gone. Uh, so hopefully they'll be able to sustain that up there and keep that up there. But people are still going because I think, as we said earlier, the price per square foot is reasonable. It's making more sense than any other place. Uh, but again, I keep saying, how much more can we gentrify? I mean, how much more is left to do? Well, there's an ebb and flow in all of this. Like th- One of the reasons why a lot of people stopped moving to Westchester so quickly, it, in reference <laughs> to the previous segment, was because maybe there's not as much tax advantage. And then we see the million yeah. dollar and under market really provide a lot of access here. Yeah. So if developers start <clears throat> buying and building and creating opportunities in West Harlem, and they get carried away with pricing, uh, that type of thing could absolutely slow things down. And then we could have another glut. I don't see that happening. Matt, I know you spend a lot of time in West Harlem, and I, we've seen a lot of townhouse townhouses converted into condos and different opportunities like that. But I mean, anytime you have a flurry of developers that could just really grossly overpriced, that could that could really slow down the moment. But there seem to be a lot of grocery stores up there, yet, too. In my neighborhood on the Upper West Side, I can't find a grocery store well, anymore. It's unbelievable. I think there's a cap on supply, though, in Harlem. So, I mean, if you look at, like, how neighborhoods evolve or gentrify, to use the word, and we talked about the Lower East Side at the beginning of the show, you know, there are a couple key factors. There's who's living there, what's the existing population. There's existing housing stock, so whether it's Mitchell Lama, public housing, brownstones, etc. And then there's zoning, so what zoning restrictions there right. are. So you look at a neighborhood like Williamsburg, as Matt referenced, and you have a neighborhood that was primarily made up of industrial buildings with very unlimited zoning. And so the turnover was almost like pushing a button because yes. businesses move out, they sell their buildings, and overnight you build a skyscraper Boom. or right. whatever. It's easy. You look at the Lower East Side and there are empty lots and corners and zoning and you can build all these beautiful buildings like 150 Rivington, etc. Uh, but then you look at the sister neighborhood of the East Village where it's taken decades and decades and decades because you have an endemic um, uh, uh, rent stabilized and rent control population, you have caps on zoning, you can't build, you can't take down buildings, and West Harlem is more similar to the East Village than it is to Lower East Side or Williamsburg. So I don't think you can over-gentrify because the zoning and the existing population won't allow it. Yeah. All, right, we right. Have yeah. Right. All right, we have to leave it there, take a break. Uh, segment four coming up on the other side of the break. We are live from New York. This is Good Morning New York. Don't go away.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. We're back with Matthew Cohen, Ari Harkov, Sean McPeak, John Harrison, and Anna Shagalov. And Matthew wanted to make one last, one last point on Harlem before we move on to the next topic. Go right ahead. So one thing we always talk about are fringe neighborhoods. And it's, a, it's a very big trend, obviously, over the last year and moving forward. So this specifically applies to Harlem because in West Harlem – the prime of it has always been between 110th and 125th Street. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing lately is a lot of developers are going north of that. And they're expanding what is prime Harlem. If you look at most of the new developments, Rachel Medley has one on 133rd. The Kranzes are doing the Rennie, which is just a few blocks up from the Orem, which is on Adam Clayton, and I want to say 138th. Um, so that's where you're going to see a lot of pushing and movement because also the zoning is not as harsh when you're in the one thirties and not to correct anyone, but Columbia is not Harlem. Columbia is Morningside Heights. And if you really want to talk about Harlem city college is what affects Harlem because it's beautiful. 
and it has a massive piece of land in that's that really area. Hamilton Heights. No? That's yeah. It's honestly where do you draw the it's line really, It's really like a transition mm. because um, a lot of people consider that Harlem. So since it's still technically the one. Well, I think like everything else, people just lump areas into one. So anything I think north of 110th Street, east and west, becomes Harlem. I mean, you know, I've known this from before I was in, a real, in, in real estate, but you're right. It's not. It's segmented. It's different. The Lower East Side, everything is the Lower East Side. Well, you've got the East Village and you don't have, you know, whatever. So I think people just lump everything into, well, that's Harlem, that's North, that's there. Upper West Side, they stretch the boundaries, you know, to wherever they want to stretch it to. Same on the East Side. So, you know, I don't yeah. know. It's I, like lump crab. And I bet you Whole Foods is selling that right <laughs> That's, a, that's going pounds. into one of my next recipes. Anyway, let's move on. The, L, the LGBTQ community and the real estate industry go hand in hand, as I said earlier in the show. In fact, together they hold the key to significant advancement for the New York State real estate market. Why? With $940 billion annual buying power and the $1.7 trillion in economic input made by that community, it's no wonder they're a major contributor to the market, at least here in New York City. According to GLAD's third annual acceleration acceptance report, 20% of respondents aged 18 to 34 identified as part of the LGBT community. So what does that have to do with real estate? High concentrations of the community can be seen across some of the most expensive neighborhoods in Manhattan. It's been known that uh, gay people buying here in the city have changed and transformed neighborhoods, starting with Greenwich Village, which holds historical and cultural significance to the LGBT community, while also dishing out expensive price tags. Not only uh, are Manhattan, Chelsea, and Hell's Kitchen popular locations for the gay community today, they also hold the largest concentration of uh, gay-owned businesses. Brooklyn neighborhoods such as Park Slope, Windsor Terrace, Bushwick, East, Williamsburg, and Bed-Stuy are also becoming popular among the gay community. And with real estate currently on the rise in all of these neighborhoods, it's clear that a successful market is highly dependent on the community. June is not only Pride Month for uh, LGBT community, but it's also National Home Ownership Month. I didn't know that. The National Association of Gay and Lesbian Real Estate Professionals is gaining widespread popularity uh, in real estate industry around the country. The conference will cover the best ways to reach this community and sell your your property. So you need so many things to comment on with regards to this. He has Bursting. nothing to say. So, so as, no. so as, as, Fill us in, Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as a proud gay man myself, um, and I'm a big supporter of the LGBTQ community. Um, one of my favorite phrases that one of my celebrity gay clients always shares is that leave it to the Queens to make neighborhoods Royal. Um, so, so, and that, I think that's a great that phrase. That is like the best that phrase I've heard. Um, you, 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 <laughs> we should make we'll, we'll, we'll totally we'll trademark that. We'll, yeah, you yeah, kind of just did publicly yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way. Sean and Corey, <laughs> yeah, we're doing this. So, um, if you that. if you look at the most popular neighborhoods throughout the last 10, 20, 30 years, the West Village, you know, yeah. that was all the gays. Um, Chelsea is all the gays. Obviously, Hell's Kitchen is going through a major transformation. And then, you know, I, I have to think of another phrase for this one, but all the queens are now going to Queens. So, you know, that's a whole other thing. Like a lot queens of gay, a lot of gay <laughs> actors. Yeah, there you go. Oh, my God. Well, Homeward <laughs> bound for the queens. <laughs> like all of the a lot of gay actors these days are moving to Astoria, you know. So that's it's just a huge part of almost gentrification. I'd say they're the tastemakers; they are the trendsetters. Yeah, I'd say you follow that community and the artist community. And any 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 time they've arrived in a neighborhood, it's always been very gritty. 
It's always been ungentrified, but then all of a sudden, everybody else wants to come and be Is cool it because too. of economics, you know, for, for gay couples, for example, they make a lot of money for the most part, you know, uh, they have great jobs, so they can afford to come into these neighborhoods, buy at higher prices than, than most, and then, you I know, eventually transition. I think it's the opposite. I think, they, yeah, I think, it, I I think it's the original ones, they find the discounts to go to the, the underpriced neighborhoods like Hell's Kitchen was a little while ago, and like Soho and Chelsea were. Uh, and then they make it cool, and then they drive prices up. I also, I also think gay people normally go through a lot of hard times throughout their life, and they become trendsetters and transformers, and they're not scared to push the fringes of neighborhoods. And Agreed. I think that yeah. when you look at places like West Chelsea along the High Line, you know that's an extremely gay population, and that was not always pretty over there. And I think a lot of gay people who you know, really spearheaded the arts, kept on pushing and pushing that neighborhood, you know, um, limit. And I think that's the big reason. Not only that, then the art galleries in Chelsea is a little different than Soho because they bought commercial condos, so they're not being forced out like a lot of the other neighborhoods that are now being gentrified. And small disclaimer: I'm not I'm not gay, but recognizing, <laughs> but, but, but but recognizing the idea. It's okay, we accept you. Oh, I love you. Thank you. But recognizing the idea that if there's a community that is um, built or formed on this concept of not always living in comfort, you know, of coming through struggle or of recognizing opportunity in spite of being accepted, then like then it makes complete sense. Like if there is a community that can recognize the direction of things uh, in spite of that comfort, then then why wouldn't they be part Do of the trendsetters? Do you think people just want to become trendsetters because they, they, they take a chance and they don't they, they feel like they have nothing to lose, so they're just going to go into a neighborhood, they're going to try their best? No, I, I think they, I, I think they, they recognize the beauty. It's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly, the beauty of it. Yeah, they recognize. They, go in the, they, go, they went to Harlem, like 125th Street, 15, 20 years ago, they see this beautiful brownstone that's totally run down. Yeah. It's like a trap right. house. Right. And then they, you know, they paint it, they do whatever, and then all the home values go up around it. Well, we, do you think we, also that, you know, gay people, because they've been in the minority for so long, are more comfortable living around other minorities? Exactly. That's where they push the limits. And well, also, I mean, that's what I, I think. the whole Hudson yeah. area, by the way, is gay. Like, that's how that whole yeah. thing happened. They went up Hudson there. Hudson upstate New York. Yeah, yeah. they went up there. Yeah. Um, we went up there. I want to, like, join the bunch. <laughs> um, you know, they found dilapidated houses, and they built them, and they built them beautifully, and they bought and sold. And, I mean, actually, like, a huge um, example of this is Patrick Lilly. Like, he's so good, not only at being a broker, but flipping houses. And I think the gays have done that in so many different neighborhoods and communities throughout the country. Well, that's a great business plan for most. Anyway, we are unfortunately out of time. We will pick up that topic next time. That's it for me. That's our show for today. Thanks to my guest and uh, panel, as always. Always remember how wonderful life is while you are in the world. Thanks, Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. 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 Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. 